0: Great to be singing those songs, wasn't it? To, to declare what God has done and to declare the assurance that we have in Christ. Uh, what a wonderful saviour. I, I was convinced as, we, as I was sitting here worshipping that some of us here have a testimony that's recent, that God's been doing stuff in our lives that's, that's happened really recently. If you, if you have got a story of what God's been doing recently, just put your hand up. Who's, who's got a recent testimony of what God's been doing? A few people. Wonderful stuff. Thank you. We want to rejoice, don't we, with each person that's got a story of what God's doing? And we want to hear more of those. So, if God has. You, some of you will have to stories, but you're just wondering in case I'm going to bring you up. That's why you didn't put your hands up. Um, I'm not going to do that today because we don't have time right now. But we want to create space to be telling stories of God's goodness. And so, if you have got a story of what God's been doing, let us know, please. Uh, some might end up in the Connect magazine with your permission, some might end up being shared with your permission some we may just take and say, do you know what, there's one other person who that would really bless because we know what they're going through. Would you share it with them? So if there's a story of what God's doing, we'd love to hear it. Uh, One, because it encourages our faith and two, because we can glorify God. Three, because we can then put people in touch uh, around this place and encourage and build up our confidence in God. Uh, Today's message is linked into a Several passages that we're going to be looking at, um, all from Luke chapter 5, and I've, I've given it a title, sort of, but I think I'm, just as I was worshipping God, I think I need to change the title a bit, so I'll get to that in a minute. But I've often heard it said that Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. How many of you have heard that? Quite a few. How many of you have said that? Quite a few. Okay, yeah. It's quite a, quite a natty, sort of neat phrase. It's quite helpful. Um, there's a lot of truth in it, but in the Gospels, when we get to those, the question isn't, is it a religion or a relationship? But but what does right religion look like? What what does it look like to live true religion versus false religion? I think that's the kind of the tension that we're seeing. And And I'd called this message originally, Losing False Religion and Gaining Jesus. Losing False Religion and Gaining Jesus. But I actually want to call it something like how to spot if you're a Pharisee and how to stop being one. Um, Because I think that's more relevant to our lives today. Um, Jesus, in these stories we're going to get to, is surrounded by religious teachers of several groups, Pharisees mainly, but also a group called the scribes as well. They're like religious lawyers, and we're going to read about them in a minute and the Pharisees. And the Pharisees are people who are dedicated to trying to help the whole nation keep the law of God. They're not a very large group, but they're a very influential one. They're not priests. They're not officials. They're just people like you and me, uh, but who are completely passionate about keeping the law and helping others do the same. And as they're doing that, they come up against Jesus time and again. And they're helped by these guys called the scribes, who are religious lawyers. They write down traditions, they keep the traditions, they share the traditions, they debate the traditions, uh, and that's the kind of context we're seeing Jesus arriving into. And when you read through the Gospels, and I want to say this in advance before we get to it on purpose, often the Pharisees are like the bad guys in the pantomime. You almost want to go boo when you read the the stories about them, because it seems as though Jesus is against the Pharisees, when actually... In the stories we're going to read, he is, but he's very close to what they're saying. Actually, Jesus also wants the people to keep God's word. Jesus also is passionate about people growing in God and being true to what God said originally, but the way they go about it is very, very different. So these highly religious, highly faith-filled, or sorry, faithful people, Jesus challenges again and again and again. I think probably because we can end up being just like them. So let's have a look at some of the stories. I'm going to to share with you a few stories today. Actually, don't panic, but we've got five stories um, with one theme. And the first story is by far the longest, so don't worry too much if it feels like it's a long reading. Uh, So the first one is this one, and it's a story of Jesus speaking and a guy coming through the roof. I was going to reenact it, but I didn't have – we haven't got a church council meeting till tomorrow – And I thought I'd better get approval first before we open a hole in the roof that we've just paid to have fixed. Um, So we're just going to tell the story instead, um, which goes something like this. One day Jesus was teaching, and the Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They'd come from every village of Galilee and from Judah and Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal those who were ill. Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up onto the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, "'Friend, your sins are forgiven.'" The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, "'Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone?' Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, "'Why are you thinking these things in your hearts?' Which is easier, to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he'd been lying on, and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. That's a great story. This is one of the great moments in the gospel. It's one of those stories that the kids will be learning downstairs, maybe not today, but another day. It's a great story, isn't it? It's it's visual. You can imagine yourself on the scene. You can imagine yourself there as Jesus is preaching, and he's got crowds of people flocking to see him. The Pharisees, far from kind of not being interested, have traveled miles to get there. That's what verse 17 of this tells us. They've traveled a long way to get there, and, and the sick are coming too, and the crowds are there, and there's people who can't get in but want to. I was chatting to Brian about his recent trip to Israel, and he was describing a scene similar to this, um, and how the roofs were constructed, uh, and you could take sort of the reeds apart and, and could lower somebody down. And this, this passage actually says there were tiles as well, and somehow they're taking off some of the roof construction, moving some reeds apart between some beams, and and lowering down this guy right into the middle of the room. Amazing. And you can see the tension, can't you? I hope you can in this story. Just, I mean, if this was happening while I was, I'm a long way from Jesus, but just, from being Jesus, but just imagine. If, if I'm speaking now and somebody's lowered down, you'd think, well, firstly, well, that's a bit odd. And secondly, you wonder if Rob was going to be all right because he's going to be getting showered with bits of roof tile and all, and all the rest of it. And then you'd think, well, what's, what's Stuart going to do? What's his response going to be? And this is Jesus. This is the healer. This is the one that people are beginning to flock to. What on earth is this guy going to do? How is he going to respond? What's going to happen next? And Jesus' first words are really, really interesting. He says, friend, your sins are forgiven. Friend, your sins are forgiven. What an introduction. Uh, this is my first point, really. That re- false religion balks at grace. It, it struggles with grace. But Jesus loves to forgive. He just loves to forgive. Uh, and when Jesus sets out, he says, Friend, your, your sins are forgiven. Welcome. False religion categorizes, pe- categorizes people as sinners or saints. And it says, well, you're the baddies and you're the goodies. And it loves to divide people Jesus breaks that down as this guy's coming down through the roof. He starts off by saying friend. Creates a safe space. It's friend, you're welcome here. You're causing chaos, but you're welcome. A false religion struggles with grace and forgiveness. It makes the path to forgiveness long and difficult. It makes it hard. It sets up rules and frameworks about how you get forgiven. I, I actually as I was researching this passage and reading it, I found it quite hard, actually, as, a, as an evangelical Bible-believing who, who believes that Jesus saves today, who believes that all we have to do is believe in Christ and he forgives sin and he washes us clean and we lead people through a process of recognizing their sin and coming to Christ and then... Living with him for the rest of their days, there's a fairly clear process. And whether you pray a, a specific prayer at a specific point or not, doesn't matter so much as beginning that process and recognizing your sin, repenting of it, and turning to Christ. That's fairly clear. That's what we do. This guy, on the other hand, is being lowered on a mat through a ceiling, and Jesus just goes, Oh, by the way, your sins are forgiven. Well, he didn't even pray for him. Did the man repent? Does he understand who Jesus is? Has he believed? Has he got the basics of the Romans road? In terms of gospel presentation, does he understand his need of Christ? Friend, your sins are forgiven. And I'm not demeaning the process that we run through now. We need to do that. That's fundamental. But Jesus here doesn't work within our construction, our framework, our nicely established pattern. He just goes, oh, by the way, your sins are forgiven. I find that troubling. Because it doesn't fit. It doesn't fit neatly, but then I perhaps shouldn't expect Jesus to fit neatly with my theology. This man has in some way responded to Christ. He's been brought to him, and Jesus, as we know, is responding to faith. Verse 20 says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said, friends, your sins are forgiven. It's in response to faith that Jesus says that. Which fits a bit with my theology, except he then says uh, he saw their faith. It's the kind of collective. We don't even know if it's this man's faith or his friends. And I'm going to stop there. So Jesus messes up our theology sometimes, but he always responds to faith with forgiveness. False religion is easier than trusting Jesus. I've just talked about one of the formulas we have and the frameworks we have, which is incredibly helpful. And many have found equally helpful frameworks around how to pray for the sick or how to trust God at work or how to uh, discern God's will. We, we kind of get patterns of how we do things and, and how we work things out. And it kind of makes sense. But Jesus loves just to rip those apart. Faith in Jesus is full of mystery and paradox. Faith in Jesus is full of questions, but the call is to follow him and walk with him. In each of the stories we're going to read, uh, and this is the first one, there's a question. I don't know if you noticed it highlighted. There's a question in each of them. Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? The Pharisees are right. Only God can forgive sins. But they miss the obvious point. They don't look up, as Rob was saying earlier to connect the fact that perhaps this fellow here is the one who isn't just speaking blasphemy, but is God. And Jesus forgives because he wants the man to be whole, not just healed, which is why he does that first. Jesus has a great response, because he knows what they're thinking in their hearts, and he says to them, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven, or to say get up? and walk. False religion does neither. Jesus does both. So they're sitting there thinking he can't forgive sins and then they're not healing the guy either but Jesus does both, doesn't he? Which is a wonderful illustration of how powerful he is. Jesus loves to forgive. He loves to set people free. Story two. Where are we now? This one here. Luke chapter 5, verse 29. We read this story a couple of weeks ago, so I just want to draw one point out of this, really. But this is uh, Jesus calling Levi to be his disciple. Says, then Levi held a great banquet. This is after Jesus said, follow me. Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, who belonged to their sect, complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And and here, my statement is this. I think false religion loves to be seen doing the right thing, but Jesus actually does the right thing. The question the Pharisees are asking, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Now, if you're following in great detail, you may have noticed that in the first story, The Pharisees are thinking the question, and Jesus addresses their thought question. They don't even verbalize it. In this story, the Pharisees ask the disciples the question. They don't ask Jesus. And Jesus responds to the question asked to the disciples. So just just keep those in mind as we read the subsequent stories. But, But in this one, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And this is because false religion loves to make boundaries around who you mix with and who you associate with, and whether you look right. Do you look spiritual enough? Is your faith impressive enough? Do you look like you're praying enough, or giving enough, or fasting enough, or believing enough, or healing enough people, or preaching the gospel enough? False religion loves to check out whether we look like we're doing the right thing. And if you find yourself asking in lots of situations, I wonder what others will think. What will others think of me if I do? Then this is a great passage for you to look at. If you ever find yourself counseling somebody else and saying, think about what other people will think, this is another good passage to, to look at. The question the Pharisees ask, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? It's asked because the Pharisees wouldn't do that. Their thinking was this, that if you associated with sinners, that was a bad thing to do. What you should do is preach to them, call them to repentance, and then when they've repented, you could associate with them. They would perhaps associate with them to tell them that they were sinful, but not to eat with them. And Jesus doesn't just eat with them, he eats and drinks with them. Did you notice that? He, He takes it a step further, so the question isn't just why do you eat with them, it's why do you eat and drink with them? This is a social gathering. This is a party, a celebration. And, and they're scratching their heads going, what kind of teacher are you? You call yourself holy and you're eating and drinking with these people? And you're not just preaching at them, but you're celebrating with them? What kind of person are you? And I can see that they've got two legitimate concerns. Firstly, this, that, that if you eat and drink with them, it implies acceptance It implies that they don't need to change. It implies that they're okay. And the second concern would be that it looks bad to other people, that you don't look like a proper holy teacher. And Jesus destroys both of those, because the second one, he doesn't care what people think. And the first one, everybody that comes up against Jesus has a response that they have to make. And some choose to accept and some choose to reject, but nobody is placated. Never does Jesus look at sin and just pretend it doesn't exist. He exists and he walks into a room filled with sinners and he provides the opportunity for transformation in that moment. And people are transformed by trusting in him and they never stay the same. Jesus does not condone sin, but neither is he scared of it. He does not condone... uh, what the tax collectors have done, but he isn't scared of being with them. Now, there's a balance here. Just in case you're thinking, well, you need to rush out and spend your entire life with people who are decidedly un- un- unholy and unhelpful. Um, some of us, some people, have tried that, and they end up kind of just adopting everything else that, that people around them have. And just watch what Jesus does. Jesus spends a lot of time on his own or with his father. Jesus spends a huge amount of time with his disciples. Jesus spends time with crowds of people who need him and he spends time investing intentionally in people who are abject sinners. He does all of those together and it's okay. If you just do one and just invest in your private time with your father but never speak to anybody else, well then you've become a hermit. Uh, And that's wonderful if that's what God has called you to do but actually I think the command to go and make disciples of all nations requires us to be active as well. Requires us to have friends, family, go to work sometimes and and those sort of things. So probably we're not going to do that. If you land yourself in a situation where you're surrounded by people whose values are completely opposed to those of Christ and you're on your own doing it without spending time with the Father and spending time with others who can encourage you and spending time at other ministry, you'll end up unbalanced and adopting it. So there's balance there, but we shouldn't be scared of those who are far from Christ because we were too once. False religion only reminds us of the distance between us and God. It gives reasons why God wouldn't want to be near us, why God can't use us. And if you have right now a nagging doubt that your sin is too great for God to use you, that's a false religious belief. It's not true. It's not the gospel. If you have a... uh, A thought that somehow God couldn't possibly use you. That he's written you off. That your sin is too big for God. That's not true. Jesus sought out sinners. I heard a story of an elderly lady recently in our town. Who was invited to an alpha course uh, by a church leader from another church. And her response was this. I'd love to come. Am I allowed to? And she had never heard that she was allowed to come to church. She thought that church was for holy people and she thought the church was for people who'd got it all together and those Christian people and she knew she wasn't like that but she didn't know that she was allowed to come. The the truth is this, the people aren't flocking to fill the churches in our town, are they? We're here. I'm not preaching, I'm preaching preaching to converted in this sense but we're we're here, we've done it, we've arrived but there are churches around our town that could be filled to overflowing. And it's not even about just filling churches, but people aren't flocking necessarily right now to find Christ. One and two are, and threes and fours are, and fives and tens are, but there's thousands of people who need somebody to go and enter into their world and stand where they stand and sit where they sit and walk where they walk and get into the mess that they're in without being coated in it ourselves and bring redemption and life and love and not remind people of their distance from God necessarily other than through us entering and them noticing that we're so different. Story three, really quick one. It just immediately follows this story. They said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray and so do the disciples of the Pharisees but yours go on eating and drinking. Jesus answered them, can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? Interesting. False religion loves to compare And Jesus loves to measure differently. Now, I think this is probably one of the ones that affects us more than most others on this list. This is where I think many of us end up being Pharisees. And if you find yourself loving to compare with others, then this is a great scripture to look at. When I say loving to compare, what I mean is as as a measure of how well you're doing. I'm not going to ask for a hands-up if you've ever done this, because I reckon we all have. How am I doing? Am I okay? Well, I'm better than so-and-so and and that crowd. I'm not as bad as them, but I'm not as good as them. Therefore, I'm probably doing okay-ish, because I'm in the middle somewhere. And that sense of how am I doing, am I all right, is endemic across our society. We do it. All sorts of people do it. We measure by how other people are. False religion emphasizes striving to be right with God. When it's comparing, the emphasis is on uh, getting right with God and doing a lot of work yourself. In that passage, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. Uh, it's, it's hard for us to, to imagine how controversial this was. In this first century time, the Pharisees would have fasted at least twice a week. Uh, this was their common practice, and it was just understood that if you were a religious person, you fasted. If you were trying to be faithful to God and trying to create space to pray and to be with Him, you did fast. You, you did, it was basic. It was assumed. It, it wasn't some extra thing that only a few very, very holy people did, but people fasted and they created space. And, and they prayed, and sometimes Jesus challenges the way they do it because they're, they're making it evident that they're fasting, and Jesus tells you to do it privately. But Jesus doesn't even talk about that here. He, he just says, well, can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast? while well, he's with them, implying my disciples don't fast. And that's okay, because I'm here. And we struggle to think how revolutionary this would be in that time To to be saying that something that's considered a core practice of faith doesn't matter. It, It would perhaps be as shocking as me standing up here and saying, oh, you don't need to come to church. It's fine. Just go and be. You don't need to pray. It's all right. God knows your thoughts anyway. Why do you need to verbalize them? It would be like saying something like that. You don't need to read your Bible. You've probably read it once already. Probably done that. How ridiculous would that be? Because we know the reasons for all of those things. We know about being part of a community of believers journeying in the same way together and encouraging and building each other up and using spiritual gifts. It's difficult to do that on your own. It's difficult to encourage and challenge and discipline and and grow one another when you're on your own, isn't it? Watching the TV screen or something just doesn't work in the same way. We know why we pray because God calls us to pray, not just so that he hears us, but so we make a difference. Because he's created this wonderful thing called prayer where we partner with God in making things different. He's called us to read the word because he speaks to us through it by his spirit daily. And Jesus doesn't fast, seemingly. Or he's certainly not for for the Pharisees to know. But they're looking on the outside and saying, we're more spiritual than you are. We kind of tick the right boxes. And Jesus tells a story another time that I think might be really helpful to us today, just to help get into why this is a problem for us. Jesus tells a story about a Pharisee and a tax collector going to pray. Do you know the story? The Pharisee and the tax collector go to pray. And the Pharisee prays, oh God, I thank you that I'm not like that man. And the tax collector beats his chest before God and says, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. That's the essence of the story. How many of you know that story? It's important that I get rough hands out. Okay, you know the story. Okay, it so says, thank you. There's a guy praying, saying, thank you, I'm not like this man. There's a guy praying, saying, God, I'm not worthy. Now, my problem is this, that we read that story and go, thank you, God, I'm not like the Pharisee. And in so doing, we prove that we are just like the Pharisee. That's my problem today. That's why I'm preaching all of this. Because we stand and we compare and we look at someone else and we say, God, I thank you that I know so much more than they do, that I'm so much better than they are that I'm in a different place, that my understanding of grace is so much better, that my experience of Christianity is better, that my way of worship is better, that my way of understanding about spiritual gifts is better, and we compare and we cause ourselves problems because we become a Pharisee in doing so, in, in this sense. Oh dear. False religion gives pride when we keep up religious practices and it condemns us when we don't. That's why you feel better when you've prayed uh, consistently in a pattern when you've been struggling to do so. Uh, and you feel good about yourself, and you, uh, praying is good and will make you feel good anyway because you've been communing with Father. But, but often there are times I know in my life where I've fasted for a period, I've prayed for a period, and you get to the end and pride creeps in, and you go, oh, haven't I done well? At which point, you know, you need to pray a bit more because you probably haven't done so well as you thought you had. And we measure by externals. This came home to me very powerfully when I heard a talk that was talking about family life and having married, good marriage and good family life. And it was telling the stories of some of the heroes of faith that I've held to be heroes of faith. And it was telling their backstory, if you like, of not the books that they wrote, not the churches they led, not the prayers they prayed or the people that got healed, but what happened in their families? And I was shocked, to be honest. And I won't tell you the names because I don't want you to be shocked or disappointed either. But I was shocked at the number of people who I'd elevated to a pedestal and appreciated their ministry who actually, behind the scenes, life was falling apart. Now, the danger in that is I then judge them and just change the measure and start having a different criteria to say, well, my family life's better than... No, that's not what I'm saying. And I'm not wanting us to dethrone people And and kind of look for the problems in their lives. Look for the hidden sin. No, no, that's before God. God can do that. The problem is that we elevate some and we diminish others. That's the issue. And I want us to stop doing that. I want to stop doing that myself. Stop elevating speakers who appear on uh, popular Christian channels or who write great books. Stop, Stop lifting people up and saying, well, they're better than, if only I could. Because God has called us to follow him. Christ has spoken to us like the man lowered down through the roof and said, your friend, your sins are forgiven. And the calling on our lives is just as powerful as on anybody else's. Don't diminish what God is doing. Don't elevate what God is doing. Take what God is doing and run with it and live with it because that's the calling that God's got for us. Heroes of faith are wonderful to have, but let's recognize that they're people just like us. Incidentally, just, I need to say this, carefully, uh, Jesus is saying to the, disciple, saying to the f- people who are questioning him, this is the reason why the, my own disciples aren't fasting at this point. Uh, because the Pharisees themselves would have rules about when you fasted and when you didn't. You wouldn't fast at a wedding feast, you wouldn't fast at a festival, and you wouldn't fast on a Sabbath celebration days. And Jesus is saying an audacious claim, he's saying they don't need to, because today's a celebration. Today's a celebration because I'm here. And because I'm here, they don't need to. We're having a festival for three years of ministry while I'm with them. That's what's going on. Finally, two stories in one. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields and the disciples began to pick some heads of grain and rub them in their hands and eat the kernels. Some of the Pharisees asked, why are you doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath? On another Sabbath, he went into the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. But Jesus knew what they were thinking and said to the man with a shriveled hand, "Get up and stand in front of everyone." So he got up and stood there. Then Jesus said to them, "I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath to do good, or to do evil, to save life, or to destroy it?" Now, now these are unusual stories, and we don't have time, obviously, to unpack them in full detail. But, but this first story, you were allowed to walk through a field that didn't belong to you and if you were hungry, you could take some grain and, and rub it and, and break it open and eat it. That was allowed. If, your, if a friend had a vineyard or someone had a vineyard, you could walk through and take some grapes and eat them. You weren't allowed to take a basket to, to kind of harvest the grapes and in a field, you weren't allowed to take a scythe to someone else's field. You could just take what you could get in your hands. It's a bit like the sort of Pick your own, where, where you kind of weigh it at the end in a basket, but you know that if you've got kids with you, they've eaten half the field. Because they, they go with their basket and strawberries around their mouth like this, don't they, these days. Well, it's kind of similar to that sort of concept. But the issue isn't that the disciples are eating the grain. The issue is that they're doing it on the Sabbath. And here, false religion adds detail which God doesn't give. The Jewish teachers, the scribes, had... On top of the Old Testament, they had something called the Mishnah, and then the Talmud. The Mishnah was their traditions, and the Talmud was the teachings on based on those traditions. And in the Mishnah, it's, there was lots of rules that you could and couldn't do on the Sabbath. 39 things you couldn't do on the Sabbath, including reaping, threshing, winnowing, and preparing food. And the disciples, by taking corn from the stalks, were reaping, even though they did it with their hand by rubbing the corn in their hands, were threshing, by throwing away the husks they didn't want, were winnowing, and by eating it, were eating prepared food. That's why they were breaking the Sabbath commands, breaking the traditions. Even the Mishnah apparently says, I haven't found this, but this is a quote I read, rules about Sabbath are as mountains hanging by a hair, for scripture is scanty, but rules many. I quite like that. Interesting quote. And Jesus comes up, with a, kind of comes up with a response to this. He challenges what they've said with a story about David. And really the summary that Jesus replies is this. He says that ceremonial restrictions are to give way to basic human need. If you're hungry, then you're not restricted because you're allowed to eat on the Sabbath. Basic human need doesn't, doesn't get diminished by the Sabbath rules ceremonial restrictions give way to basic human need the second story is similar it's about what's lawful or permitted on the Sabbath and and I said in each of the stories there's a question and there was in the last one why, why do you do what's unlawful on the Sabbath on this one I want you to just notice quickly the Pharisees don't ask a question but Jesus asks a question so there is still a question about the law, and this is one where Jesus is challenging other people before they challenge him. It's a different Sabbath, different place, and a man with a shriveled hand is there. And the religious groups are watching. Will he heal on the Sabbath or won't he? Now, the Mishnah and the, the Pharisees teaching it and the scribes had rules around what you could and couldn't do about healing on the Sabbath. If a woman was about to give birth, the midwife could deliver the baby. She didn't have to say, no, I'm sorry, you have to wait for a day. And if you have been with a pregnant woman about to give birth, you know that response wouldn't be kind of gratefully appreciated at that point. The answer would have been, okay, fine, I'll wait 24 hours. Um, that would have been a, a different issue that would have been. That would have been a rule about murder, I think, that would be coming up just at that point. But So, as, uh, midwives could deliver babies. If someone's life was in danger, they could be rescued on the Sabbath. If you were sick... Generally, you had to wait another day. That was the basic understanding. If it was sickness that didn't, wasn't an emergency, you had to just wait and get someone to deal with it another day. That was the construction around the Sabbath. The principle of false religion is this. It elevates defending God's honor above living for him. False religion plays off one principle against another all the time. Jesus asks this question, what's permitted, to do good? Is it permitted to do good or to do evil, to save life or destroy it? And he says to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man does so. And as he does so, by faith, his hand is restored. The Bible goes on to say that the response of those watching was that some were delighting, but some were furious. It's a very strong word that's used there, absolutely furious that the Sabbath rules had been broken in their eyes. And the saddest thing of all is that false religion forgets why and focuses on what. We get focused on doing the right thing and we forget why we're doing it. Jesus says again and again that the Sabbath is made for man, not man For the Sabbath. It's a blessing. God created this wonderful day to be in His presence, this day of rest and presence, to proclaim good and live good and do good. Not as work. Jesus isn't working. He says to this man, stretch out your hand. How does that count as working? Really? Is that hard? Is it arduous? He just says, Stretch out your hand, and the man just goes like that and he's healed. What's the point of all this today? If you find that you're acting towards God out of fear, that you're wondering if God actually has got a bit fed up of you, that you've let him down and there's no way back, that actually life walking with Jesus is a bit like a snakes and ladders board, where you feel like you're climbing a ladder and then you go along and then you get to a snake and you back down again and you have to start all over again. And it's like that game where you're just going through a continual cycle and you're a bit tired of it. Well, stop. Just stop. Take out the ladders. Take out the snakes. There are no shortcuts. There's no super spiritual shortcut course you can go on. You can't sign up to something that will get you bypass years of walking with Jesus to get you some super, super knowledge that's, you've just got to walk with Jesus and live it out and have an adventure and put it into practice day after day after day and you'll find that you're progressing through life. And there are no snakes that are there to trip you up so that God won't be pleased with you again. You start again. Just live by faith day by day by day. Let's abandon false religion. Let's abandon comparison. Let's be grateful for what God has given and determined to press on. See, I believe that God has called us to an adventure. And I know that false religion stifles adventure. It stifles life. It stifles liberty. It brings fear. But Jesus wants us to be alive. If you needed to hear the words today, friend, your sins are forgiven, then take that. If you need to hear the words, stretch out your hand. And that which has been withered in your life, as you stretch out in faith, will come to life, then take that. If you need to hear about stopping comparing and stopping judging, then take that. But let's today receive afresh from God, the one who calls us to adventure, the one who calls us to live for him, and let's put away false religion. Let's pray, shall we?